Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. You're tuned to the Steve Donahue Show on CPL Radio, your one-stop daily source for Steve's take on the world of books. And now your host, the book critic who literally reads everything, Steve Donahue. Greetings, fellow patrons of the Cedarburg Public Library, and welcome back to the Steve Donahue Show, where we discuss bookish news, views, and reviews with a beady eye for Teen Beat exclusives. <laughs> and the news that I have for this admittedly very short podcast of the Steve Donahue Show revolves around a uh, pinch point. It revolves around a modern-day uh, robber baron. Uh, we like to think people like to vilify Jeff Bezos of Amazon as being one man who has enormous personal control over a vast amount of book distribution. And it's true. If you think about it for a minute, if you personally cheese off Jeff Bezos and you have a book on Amazon, good luck. <laughs> it's, he can pull it. He can, he can order some a wee, sleeked, timorous, cowering little slave in his office to pull the book and never have it listed again. He could shadow ban it so that you don't even know what's happening. And who knows what else? He, he has uh, Amazon has vast, impersonal, and complete control over the books in its domain. And those books are huge. That, that domain is vast. People download books, especially in, in a pandemic. Uh, electronic books have a renaissance that... Uh, isn't exactly the kind of renaissance that you or I might want them to have, but nevertheless, people suddenly couldn't go to bookstores. They couldn't go to brick-and-mortar bookstores. And the method of logging onto Amazon, finding some book that you want and getting it seamlessly downloaded to your phone or your iPad in two seconds is something that a lot of people already knew. They already knew it existed. They already knew how to do it. A lot of people have been devoted to that way of getting books for a long time, myself included. I have been a gigantic fan of ebooks uh, for 10 years. They solve so many of the problems of printed books, after all, and they are so easy to do. I noticed that ease uh, long before it was mandated by a government, long before it, it was 
there were state guidelines in place over whether or not you could go out and how and for how long. And long before bookstores closed, just summarily closed. In the United States, they closed for months at a time, just shuttered their doors, dismissed their staff. Uh, long before that was the case, I was loving the ease of ebooks. And it, it, not just for getting the book and being able to start reading it, when the whim strikes you at night at night, even in the best of the happy old evergreen days when we could all go out and about in public, uh, you're putting on your long johns and getting into the car and going to the bookstore in order to get that book, the whim would be over long before you got to the front door. Whereas you could satisfy it instantly with an ebook. That has always been immensely appealing for me, and not that hasn't been the only reason. I am also, as I've mentioned uh, a couple of times on this podcast, uh, a book reviewer. And oh my, do ebooks make book reviewing easy? <laughs> they make it so much easier than printed books in so many ways. Uh, and uh, leaving my example apart, plenty of people either fell in love with ebooks or fell in love with ebooks all over again thanks to the pandemic. And that has caused a number of people to notice that there is this one guy who's in charge. Amazon has, I forget the latest statistics, but they have, let's put it, let's put it gently, the lion's share of the ebook market. If you're going to buy an ebook online, it's almost certainly going to be from Amazon through one of their services, through uh, some, some subdivision that they own. They really have the pattern worked out right? I mean, the books will be for a discounted price. If you have an Amazon membership of one kind or another, it will be winging to you in no time at all. It is, they've worked it out so that it's very easy. You don't have to enter in information every time you want to order something. The process just shuttles you right to the end of the process. <laughs> and it shuttles you right to the buy button. Uh, and that, like I mentioned, that has caused people to notice that all of that, that whole procedure, all the books that accumulate through that are under the control of one person. Now he might say, Jeff Bezos might say, well, no, I have shareholders and I have a board and I have a whole bunch of people I'm beholden to. And there's also the law. If, if someone were to, uh, I don't even know, slap me in public and I were to find out that they have two books on, on Amazon and remove them, I, Jeff Bezos, would be guilty of a crime. Uh, probably several crimes, depending on what state that author lived in. Nevertheless, uh, in exchange for the compliance that Amazon gives to the government of the United States when it comes to things like breaching the privacy and snitching on its own members, uh, in exchange for that, the government has, uh, at least in most recent years, been fairly gentle with allowing Jeff Bezos to to rule the place like, uh, like a, fief, a fiefdom lord. Uh, I think that, that that will probably change. It might be one of the only positive notes of, uh, of a Donald Trump presidential administration. Trump hates Bezos, not because of anything literary. Donald Trump doesn't read and doesn't know how to read, uh, but because Bezos also owns a newspaper that is critical of Trump, and that is how authoritarian dictators think. They think, well, if this newspaper is criticizing me every week, well, then it must be that the newspaper hates me and there's got to be a guy there that I can ruin because of that. Uh, authoritarian dictators never think, well, what reason do they have? They never think that way. But one way or another, even though the motives are as dark and petty and twisted and evil as ever were held by any American president, one of the side effects is to have a, a supine and compliant U.S. Senate start to look a little harder at Amazon's 
effective monopoly when it comes to so many aspects of the way it does its job. Uh, so it, the, the next four years may be a little difficult for Jeff Bezos, but he is in the spotlight for this kind of thing because Amazon is ubiquitous. It's everywhere. This week alone, I have bought groceries, an article of clothing, a backup iPad charger, all from Amazon without even thinking. It's where you go if you're looking for something, especially if you're locked in at home. You, you go there and you order it. Uh, but lost in the spotlight of that is the fact that in the 21st century, the reality of uh, one literary robber baron having his finger on the chokehold of a massive amount of book distribution is actually true for another person as well. Jeff Bezos isn't alone. And that person is James Daunt, the, uh, the British financier and venture capitalist who uh, bought... Uh, Waterstones, the, the UK-based retail superstore chain Waterstones, uh, when it was wobbling and directionless, uh, he bought it, and the speculation for, for everyone was that he was going to strip it for parts, the way uh, venture capitalists tend to do, that he was going to drive up its expenses, exile its management, and then strip it for parts and sell it off at a tidy profit for everyone except the books, uh, the book worker, uh, book readers in the UK who would suddenly not have Waterstones to kick around anymore. That was the assumption. The assumption is that he would do that. Uh, but he did not. Instead, he went, he went at the problem of Waterstones from the view of a book fan. He went at the problem of Waterstones from the point of view of someone who wanted to save it, not scrap it. And it largely worked. He decentralized the, the central planning that was the bugboo, the ideological bugboo of every big retail uh, bookstore chain, where a central group of people did the buying and the distributing, and where a huge amount of the... Uh, a huge amount of the stock was given to stores on a consignment basis so that if they didn't sell it, they could return it uh, for a huge amount of money. And the bookstores went along with this. The publishers went along with this. This has been the pattern for a long time. Uh, an unhealthy pattern, obviously, since if a retailer uh, if a retailer doesn't have uh, isn't on the line for what they buy, then they're not going to be on the line for what they sell. And so they're not going to need to know their community, and they're not going to need to know their customers, and they're not going to need to hire uh, knowledgeable staff. You get rid of that, and suddenly all those things come into play again. Suddenly a store in the suburb of Baltimore will realize what it should have known all along, which is that it's a drastically different store from a store in, in Portland, Oregon. Uh, those were some of the philosophies that Daunt brought to this. Give autonomy back to local stores. Give them a chance to shape their own public-facing appearance and their own uh, stock. And as has been reported widely in the press in the, the last year, he also went to publishers and said, look, I know the deal you've had before, but times have changed, and that deal has to change as well. And has been largely successful at that. So when Daunt then bought Barnes & Noble, the last standing uh, big box retail bookstore chain in the United States, well, the speculation was all over the map when he started to do it, as you could imagine. The people, a lot of the people who said, well, venture capitalists only drive up debt on the things they buy and then run them into the ground and sell them off for parts for personal profit, for giant 
uh, golden parachutes. That's all they do. So that's what will happen to Barnes & Noble. There were plenty of people who said that when Daunt bought the company. And unlike when he bought Waterstones, there was a large chorus of people saying no. <laughs> Ordinarily, we might believe that, but he has intentionally not done that with the one other big retail bookstore chain that he's bought. It's possible that that is a pattern. It's possible that he won't do that with Barnes & Noble. Uh, and that turned out to be true. He bought Barnes & Noble and announced right away that he was not going to drive up uh, needless debt, that he, that he instead planned to save the chain the same way he saved Waterstones. By decentralizing the buying power, forever and ever buying for all Barnes & Noble stores was done by a coterie of eight people in an office in Manhattan. Uh, irrespective of what the individual uh, neighborhoods of those stores wanted or could sell. And for a long time, Barnes & Noble also had the same crippling uh, returns policy so that they weren't on the hook for stuff they didn't sell, so they didn't have to try to sell it, uh, and didn't have to have people knowledgeable enough working there to, to sell it to, uh, to customers. Daunt decided to do the same thing for Barnes & Noble that he'd done for Waterstones. He decided to decentralize the buying, to, to decentralize the display, the look of the stores, and to give them a physical renovation so that they weren't quite so impersonal. Now, is devil, devil's advocate here just for a minute, and of course in any discussion of retail bookselling, uh, big chain bookstores will be the devil. <laughs> so, but let's take devil's advocate here for just a second. You can understand uh, the reasoning behind the decision on Barnes & Noble's part to do what they did. And it's good reasoning to an extent. You want... Uh, the idea that Barnes & Noble had all those years ago was that the experience of walking into a big Barnes & Noble anywhere in the country should be relatively the same. You should be seeing the same books, you should be seeing the same kind of variety, the same kinds of displays. And that thinking was undertaken not just because Barnes & Noble liked to collect money from publishers who were paying for those displays and paying for that prominence, but also because Barnes & Noble didn't want to be at the mercy of a store manager or store assistant manager or store merchandising manager who may be an imbecile. <laughs> you, you, want to, you don't want to be at the risk of someone who, who is, happens to own it, to run a store in some poor benighted suburb who is a moron, doesn't have any idea what to do, he's lazy, uh, has poor taste, or maybe has extremely pointed tastes and doesn't care whether the rest of the world shares those. When the, the attitude of the Barnes & Noble approach was, let's get rid of that. Let's make sure that doesn't happen. Let's safeguard the little communities who deserve as polished and professional a front door to the store, so to speak, as the, the big stores in LA and New York. Okay, as far as devil's advocate goes, that is fairly good reasoning. Uh, and Daunt's new system has the risk, there is the risk, that uh, those old abuses, the abuses that, that Barnes & Noble was worried about 30 years ago, will start to happen. That, for instance, arch-liberal store managers or arch-conservative store managers will start to, f to make an imprint on the first impression their store makes without caring uh, that plenty of the people who walk through their front doors won't have partisan political opinions or will have particle, partisan political opinions that aren't their own. I am old enough to remember that when bookstores, you ran the risk of being like that. When there was no such thing as a superstore chain, you ran the risk of being at the mercy of whoever the store manager was in terms of what they thought was important and what they didn't. 
Uh, it's a good way for a store to hemorrhage and then to hemorrhage money and then go out of business because if the store manager has a yen for you know Prussian military history, you'll get ten books on that ordered ten deep. When a sensible store manager would know that none of them are in fact going to sell. Uh, Daunt has assured people in many interviews that this is not a free for all. That uh, there will still be such a thing as as Barnes and Noble corporate and Barnes and Noble corporate will still be keeping an eye on what the individual stores do. Uh, as I think he, the example he put was that if if, uh, if you are a Barnes & Noble anywhere in the country and you don't have ready, readily available copies of The Catcher in the Rye, you're going to get a phone call. <laughs> and Or maybe a visit, if you're close enough. Uh, I think that's interesting. Especially since, as I started out by saying, Daunt is the, the counterpart to Jeff Bezos. He Now that he is the, the guy running the show at the biggest retail bookstore chain in the UK and the biggest retail bookstore chain in the US... He is one person with his finger at the pinch point of a vast amount of book distribution. So it's kind of a good thing, I think, kind of good news that he seems to be a genuinely bookish fellow. He seems to be interested in not being cartoonishly evil. The only kidney punch that, he, that his plans got is that the, the philosophy that says, I'm going to revamp the stores, I'm going to make them more comfortable and inviting for customers. He had the, the, he had the absolutely basic insight, which is you don't compete with Amazon with slash and burn book discounts. You don't compete with Amazon with book delivery online or in person you, because you can't. There's no way you can there's no way you can compete with Amazon the way it is now. If antitrust lawyers get at it, if, uh, if scrutiny is brought to bear on some of its practices, that might not stay true. But right now, there is no competing with Amazon when it comes to that. The, the way to compete with them is something that tried and true old booksellers in Barnes & Noble stores have been saying for decades. You have to concentrate on the things that Amazon doesn't have. You have to concentrate on the things it can't do. Despite the fact that Amazon is, was, has been, last year was busy popping up brick-and-mortar stores, they were fairly soulless experiences. Uh, and Bookstores, other brick-and-mortar bookstores, don't need to be that way. They don't need to be soulless. Plenty of brick-and-mortar, non-chain retail bookstores managed to survive the Great Recession of 2008. They have managed to, to survive all the intervening years when more and more traffic has gone to online, specifically by doing what Daunt had in mind, make these stores inviting places. Hire the staff accordingly, so that they are welcoming people and knowledgeable people, and also redesign the stores so that they are more welcoming. That is a great idea. No one could have foreseen a pandemic. <laughs> the pandemic is the kidney punch. The pandemic is the kidney punch to Daunt's plans. Because you can redesign stores all you want, but if your store isn't open for business, if if you can only have you know X number of customers in at a time and they all have to wear face masks and they are subtly or maybe even not so subtly encouraged not to linger, then that plan goes out the window. And those customers are still going to be thinking that online might be easier, that the online experience might not be costing them anything. We shall have to see. So far, when that, that kidney punch was first dealt, I thought this will be the moment when Daunt will change his tune, when he will revert to his uh, corporate raider instincts and say, well, I, I had the right intentions. I tried. No one could have foreseen a pandemic, so I'm laying everyone off and I'm going to scrap these stores one by one. That's what I thought would happen. He has surprised me once again by saying, by telling people in, in numerous interviews that this is bad. This is horrible. 
this this pandemic for brick and mortar foot traffic bookstores, but that he's viewing it as temporary and is going to use this window to revamp the stores in more or less peace and quiet. Uh, he seems, in other words, to have all of his original plans on altar. We'll see. Time will tell. I just thought I would I would ruminate a little about this uh, uh, for your podcast today, especially about the reality that these two men control the books that you get in your life. Almost certainly, unless you're lucky enough to have a really good, completely independent brick-and-mortar store. Or unless you do business with one of the few publishers that doesn't outsource all of their fulfillment to Amazon. <laughs> uh, there are ways to do it. They don't, de they don't involve the double-digit discounts that Amazon always offers. They don't involve the ease, that 9 o'clock at night or 3 in the morning ease. But they are still there. And your local bookstores have... Uh, order online and pick up at the curb. They have all, they are doing their best to cope with this pandemic uh, in limited ways, <laughs> in ways that, that aren't a shadow of what Waterstones or Barnes & Noble or Amazon can do. So I, I thought I would, uh, I would ruminate a little bit on this and we'll see what comes of it. Uh, whether or not either one of these two men who control millions of books and the lives of millions of readers uh, what will happen to them as 220 turns into 221? Uh, we'll find out together. I will revisit the subject. <laughs> but in the meantime, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to sign off on this podcast for now and wish you a day of happy reading. <laughs>